I remember I was 16 years of age. I was 16. And I don't dream, and I never dream, and I rarely have dreams that I ever remember. But this one dream I remember. It felt as if it was the last days. Don't tell me how, don't tell me what, ask me what I saw. It just felt like the last days. And I remember I was standing on a wide and vast open plain. And as I looked, I saw billowing clouds above me, dark and angry. And holding in my hands, there was something in my hands that I was holding. It was simply a sword. It was a flaming sword. And I looked at this sword, and immediately I understood it to be the Word of God. But then I looked behind me and I realized I was not alone. There were multitudes of people, but they were not following me. They were following what I was carrying. And in that very moment, it is as if God said, I want you. And I remember in that instantaneous moment, I sprung out of my bed, sweat coming down my face. My bed was completely wet. I was living with my parents at that time, my mother and father. And I remember as I remembered that dream, I shuddered because as I was thinking about my life and what I had dreamt, the two could not be reconciled. Because whilst I had grown up in the church, primarily because my mother had brought me to church, primarily because she always said when she became an Adventist and when she came to church, her biggest challenge why she could even stay in the church or why she almost left the church was because of me. Because when she walked into the door of the church, my voice was so loud and crying, it discouraged her. And so she figured she was not going to come to the church. But one elder, somebody say amen, one elder came and said, let me take that child downstairs while you go to church. And whilst she tried to go to church and hear the word of the Lord, uh, this little boy's voice was bellowing from the downstairs as the elders or the deacons were trying to quieten this voice. God, my friends, had a plan. I didn't want to tell my parents what I dreamt. I didn't want to tell anybody what I dreamt because as far as I was concerned, church was the equivalent of what we would call the studio. In other words, you go to the party on the Friday night and then you say to your former Adventist friends who were there at the party with you, are you going to the studio, which means church on Sabbath. Because we didn't want anybody to know that we were Seventh-day Adventists. We didn't want anybody to know that we were Christians. And then we'd rock up to church, and then based upon who was preaching, that's who we would then see. If we didn't think that it was anybody worthwhile, then we'd stay at a house, listen to music, and then make our way down just before the end of the closing message. But God has a plan. I remember when I met my wife in 1981, there in Hansworth Seventh-day Adventist Church, as, 
as, as, as the church was full, and we used to have a whole lot of youth in those days, and, and I remember it was just uh, one evening in the afternoon program, and church was full, and I, I was sitting at the front because there was nowhere else to sit, so I, I was sitting there, and, and as I was sitting there, my friends, I, I had one seat next to me, and, and, and I noticed that she walked up, and, and she walked up, she was wearing a black uh, leather coat, her hair was just resting on her shoulders, and as she walked up, uh, she came and looked to see if there were any seats, and there was one seat. Somebody say amen. There was, there was one seat, and, and she sat next to me, and, and I looked out of the corner of my eye while trying to keep my eyes on the preacher, but she looked beautiful, and I looked at that skin, and I looked at the contour of that nose and the eyes, and I said, I really would like to get to know this young lady, but I discovered that she had some chaperones, her older brothers and sisters were there and no access was going to be granted so I, I needed to find some strategic ways in which to meet her but I praise God because when I finally did meet her I met a godly woman because I came to a conclusion one thing I came to a conclusion I'm tired of fly by night relationships I need a godly woman in my life that's when I was 17 18 or so forth and I wanted to understand my friends uh, 30 years later Later, uh, this woman who is now my wife of 28, 25 years, I thank God for my wife, Paulette. Because one of the first things she taught me was to read the Bible, to have worship in our relationship, uh, to meet and not be cuddling up, but rather saying, what scriptures shall we read today? What things shall we learn today? Uh, she prepared me, and I didn't understand that God had a plan. I remember sharing with her in confidence the dream. But she went and told her mother. <laughs> and her mother always wanted her daughter to be married to a preacher. And I wasn't planning on any of these things. And, and I remember she sitting down and talking to me and said, young man, she never called me Errol. Uh, initially in those first six years, it was simply a young man. I, I ascended to a higher level when I got married and then I was called Brother Errol. Somebody say amen. I, 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 But, but she, she, she sat with me and said, but young man, young man, God is calling you if you've got that dream. And I, and I remember saying to myself, well, maybe, maybe God has called me. And, you know, maybe there's something that God wants me to do. And, and in the church at that time, you know, you'd say a few words here in the youth meetings and so forth. And people would normally say, well, if you can speak, the assumption is, is that you're called to be a preacher. And I remember that I... I went to Pastor McFarlane, who had baptized me in 1977, back in the day, and, and, and I went to him and I said, well, Pastor, uh, this is what I'm thinking, this is what I'm feeling, but I'm not sure, and I, I don't really have the resources, etc., etc." and he turned around and says, well, you know, you may not be able to get into New Bold initially, but you may consider Birmingham Bible Institution, and I, I remember I applied to Birmingham Bible Institution. At that time, there was uh, Pastor Andrew Hewitt, and 
and there was Pastor Steve Palmer and others in the north who had also at that age group were considering going into ministry. And, and so I was part of that cohort team that was seeking to find ways uh, to meaningfully contribute uh, to the church. Uh, I thought my life was changing, Pastor Simon. So I remember joining Birmingham Bible Institution and my friends, I declare to you unequivocally, it was the worst four years of my life. If ever I was to become an atheist, it would have been that point then. I failed the first year for four years straight. Greek was Greek and Hebrew was Hebrew, and I did not understand a thing that anybody was talking about. Yet, each year, everyone was advancing, and I was returning to the first year. Somebody pray for the preacher. And when you are going through something like that, you begin to ask yourself serious questions about why you are here and for what reason God would call you to this. And you're trying to use it against the backdrop of your dream. But I want to declare to you, sometimes God calls you, but he doesn't ask you to act on the calling until he's ready. Some people run ahead way too quickly, like I did, assuming that God means this, therefore let me do this, only to discover you're going to get yourself into a whole lot of trouble, and God can see that anyway, and his plan is not phased by your idiosyncrasies and your warped mistakes that you create along the way. Ask Joseph. I came out of Birmingham Bible Institution a broken man. I vowed never again will I have attempt such foolishness. And I remember sitting in my church as my colleagues and friends moved on into ministry and I sat there saying, well, Lord, now what? And I made up my mind, I will never trust God again. Never. I'll do the church thing. I want to get saved. I don't want to go to hell, so I might as well do church. I might as well make sure that I do the right things. As an elder, you do the right things. You give the Bible studies. But I always had at the back of my mind, this question. What is this thing called faith? Is this what it's all about? I couldn't share it with anybody. You know how you play church while being eaten up with doubt? You hear the sermons, you hear the preaching, and you say hallelujah, but somewhere you're saying that's for you, but it ain't for me. It was the time of Pastor Michael Anderson, who was the pastor of our local church at that time. It was now fast forward to 1993. And the church had made a decision that they were not going to call a speaker from abroad to speak, but rather they were to select one of their own. 
And so the church was to decide, and a few names were drawn, and there was a selection. And I was so upset when I heard I was one of those selected. That was not funny. Uh, that, that, that was not on my agenda. And I remember when the final decision was made, Pastor Anderson came to me and said, you know, Errol, you've been requested to run the evangelistic campaign for uh, the church at this particular time in 1993. And this was around the end of 1992, and so I'd have all of this time to prepare. I said, Pastor, I'm not ready for this. I really am not ready. He said, he said no, Errol, you are ready. I'll show you. I'll teach you. I'll, you can come into my library, learn how to put the sermons together. I'll be your Bible worker. We'll make sure that some of the students from Newbold who are studying will be your Bible workers and you will be the preacher. I thank God for ministers like that who are able, my friends, who are able to step back and not be the magic and say, let us build you, let us grow you, let us create possibilities. God has a plan. And now, my friends, it was during that particular time, during the preparation, that I had the worst possible relationship with my wife. You see, whilst we're trying to prepare, our two children are born 18 months apart. You know how it is with young couples. We're just trying to get our story together. And as I'm trying to prepare, Paulette is waking up at at the middle of the night, sometimes at 2 o'clock in the morning, lights are turned on. She's shuffling. She can't sleep. And, 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 and now I'm getting irritated because we've got to go to work the next morning, but we're tired now. And this is happening not once, not twice, not three times, but it's going on for a whole month until I turn around and I say to her, Babes, what exactly is the problem? Why can't you sleep? She says, I can't sleep because God has told me to tell you something. I said, what is it? She says, God has told me and I'm afraid to tell you to give up your job because he has something for you to do. Now let's understand the context, my friends. I am not interested because of my own broken history of experiencing God and being angry with God for failure and being a laughing stock in my mind by others of someone who tried and failed and never got past the first year. And now God is saying, give up your job. In which instance, I just not too long gotten that job, now moving forward as a housing officer. And now God is coming at an inopportune time to now say, give up your job. This, my friends, does not make sense because there's high unemployment in England. You're lucky to get a job. You've got a sound, stable status now in your family. You've got two little children. You have a wife. There's an expectation. And now God comes in when you least expect it and says, give up your job. You must be crazy. And secondly, why couldn't God come and tell me anyway? <laughs> Since I'm the priest of the house. 
I mean, why does he have to circumvent you? But you got to understand, my neck is so stiff and my head is so hard that God has to go by my wife because he could not come to me because I would not listen. I remember that we would debate backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards. And I said, no, I'm not going to do it. I, I refuse. And I remember during that crusade, we had one of the ministers stay with us, Pastor Michael Simpson uh, from the North England Conference. Uh, he had just gotten married, and, 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 and he and his wife were staying at our home. And, and I remember, uh, you know, in confidence going to him, man to man, you know, this man to man conversation. And he turned around and I said to him, uh, Michael, tell me, if God ever told you, man, to give up your job, uh, would you do that? And you know what Pastor uh, Simpson said to me? He said, God, he said, he said, Errol, if God says jump, the only question you must ask is how high? I said, man, you've lost your mind. <laughs> how foolishness is this? This is real life here. This is reality. He says, but Errol, you got to understand, if God asks you this, he's got a plan. I said, let's understand my last plan. It didn't work. Do you remember, Michael, when you and I went to the North England Conference, and I went to Edgerton Francis, Pastor Francis, and I shared with him the possibilities? He said, brother, keep your job. You don't think about giving up nothing. Let's, let's understand, this is not going to work. You know, the arguments in my home got worse. I'm preaching at a crusade, but behind the scenes, the impact, the conflicts are getting worse. My wife is resilient. When I repulse her, she keeps coming back. Repulse her. She, she says, Errol, but this may be the time. This may be what God wants us to do. In fact, at that time, there was the Rwandan genocide that was taking place between the Hutus and the Tutsis. And my wife wanted to be a missionary. And she said, I'm going to call the conference to find out if we can be missionaries. I said, babes, you go. Just leave the kids with me because I ain't going. <laughs> I'm not going. But one day, as I was preaching one night, I heard a voice as clear as I was preaching to people that said, Errol, I want you to give up your job. I could hear it. And I was scared. I was scared, people. I want you to understand I was scared because I heard a voice while I'm preaching. And I didn't want to share with my wife that I heard that voice because I know she would have said, see? <laughs> so I don't want to bring that to her. But I'm wrestling inside now, and I know, and I'm thinking about the dream when I was younger, and I'm thinking about the journey and the failures, and I'm going to God, and I said, well, God, can you at least show me what it is you want me to do? But I want you to understand something, my friends. When God gives an instruction, he gives no more light until you do what he instructs. Amen. 
That is why I think sometimes as a church, we don't see the power of God as we ought because we can't even obey the instructions that he gives us. But if we were to obey, if we were to step into the space that he requires of us, if we were to demonstrate that faithfulness, we would see more power being dispensed in the church, my friends. This place would not be able to hold because we would be demonstrating ourselves as a people of obedience and of faith. I remember... I shared it finally with my wife and we prayed. And I remember thinking about this poem. To try is to risk failure. But risk must be taken. Because the greatest hazard of life is to risk nothing. The person who risks nothing, does nothing, has nothing, and is nothing. You may avoid suffering and you may avoid sorrow, but you simply cannot live, grow, love, or learn unless you're willing to take a risk. And in my understanding, risk-taking is equivalent to faith because there's no substance to what you're going to do. There's no evidence to what you're going to do, but it's all predicated on believing that God can hold on to you more than you can hold on to him. I remember saying this prayer. It was a simple prayer, my friends. I said, Lord, I'm tired of playing this game I call church, of pretending to believe while being eaten up with doubt. I'm weary of the pious words and the proof texts and the petty theological debates and the, the form of godliness without the power. I want desperately the real thing. And as you did to Peter that night on the lake, beckon me to come to you. Only please teach me to keep my eyes on you as I take the first halting and trembling steps. That night, I wrote out my resignation letter. That night, my wife and I prayed, knowing that I was about to make myself voluntarily unemployed. I couldn't share it with anybody. I couldn't talk to my mother about it. I couldn't talk to my father about it. I couldn't talk to the preachers about it. I couldn't talk to my friends about it because it did not make sense. I remember driving to work that morning, sitting down with my boss and sharing with him what I was about to do. And I said to him, sir, I said, sir, I'm about to resign. And I know you won't understand, but I've got to resign and I want you to accept my letter of resignation. He turns around to me and he says, Errol, have you and your wife had a fight? I said, no. He said, what do you mean you're resigning? What, what do you mean? You know how stupid it sounds when you say, God said. You, you, you know, you, it just doesn't make sense, right? God says. Well, what, what did God say? Give up your job. And what else did God say? Nothing more. And so you're giving up your job, Errol, on the basis that God said yes. And he looks at me and shakes his head. He can't believe it. It doesn't make sense. He said, Errol, I really can't accept this. I said, whether you accept it or not, I'm going to take 
this resignation seriously. I want to resign. And he said, listen, take a month. Think about it. I don't want you to do it. You're, you're doing too well here. We're moving you on. Just, just think about it. Think about it. And you know in the workplace, it's a strange thing, because the moment that the, the word gets out, here's the word, man, Errol's got religion. Uh, they found out uh, the word uh, that, 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 you know, God told him to leave, and, and so people come to you in the office, uh, is it really true that uh, uh, God told you to leave? Uh, what else did he say? And uh, you sound stupid. This gospel does not make sense. To the unregenerate mind, it really does not make sense. And you know, the week one passes and week two passes and week three passes and you're on that last week and even I'm now shaking a little bit. Does that make sense? I'm wavering a bit because I'm thinking, well, at least in those four weeks, God must have revealed something because at least I took the step. But there's no word from the Lord, no sign, no, no rhyme, no reason, nothing. And there's silence. There is silence. There's a hiddenness of God. Has anybody been in the silence and the hiddenness of God where you pray and there's nothing more coming? I'm praying that somehow God is going to intervene before the last day. But nothing is happening. And I'm moving and there's three days and there's two days. And, and now I realize that my decision has to be enacted upon. My friends, I remember gathering my little pieces and and getting into that car and driving home. And as I drove home, I realized, my Lord, what have I done? I've made myself voluntarily unemployed. Yeah, I remember picking up the phone to my mom. You know, she's a strong Adventist. Faith. Mom. Needing some consolation, you know. You need some consolation. Mom, uh, giving up my job because I, I know the Lord has something for me to do. I had to hold the phone out here. <laughs> what do you mean, giving up your job? I've given up my job. Why? Because God said, to do what? I don't know. To go where? I don't know. Errol, do you understand? You, 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 you're a brethren in your family. You, you've got two children. You, I, I know, Mom, but, but, but God, but God. Yeah, but, 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 but Errol, you got, but Mom, don't we talk about faith? Yes, but. And I remember, you know, how, you know how the word spreads in church? Oh, that word can spread, man. You don't need the telegraph. You don't need it. <laughs> no, man. That word spread, man. Even the preacher came to me and said, well, you know, Errol, it's really, really admirable that you're, you're thinking of doing this. But, 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 you know, Errol, you know, this is, you're an elder in the church. You've got to think about your stability. and You've got to think about the perspective. And you've got to think about how people view. But I'm saying, but pastor, aren't we the ones who are to talk about faith? Y yes, we understand that. But. And suddenly you discover an awful truth that it is one thing to talk about it. It's another thing to do it. Amen. Because suddenly 
It doesn't make sense. It doesn't follow a logical path, a logical position, a logical reason. It doesn't follow a particular trajectory that it's meant to flow in. And so suddenly you're feeling somewhat isolated, alone. Not because you have been isolated, but suddenly you discover your distinctive difference is that you have done something that doesn't follow traditional norms and practice. The plan was that I'd find out what God wanted me to do and my wife would still work. That, that was the plan. That, that, was, that was our plan. Still not God's plan. Because dreams must be tested. It didn't take long before the little business my wife was doing collapsed. <laughs> now, within two months, we were from here to there. You can't go to the church now and ask for welfare. <laughs> you hear what I'm saying? N now it's you and the Lord, man, because now the money's gone, Pastor Sam. You, you, you know, you, you've lost your job, or you've given up your job, and now you're sitting in a place where you're asking the question, now what, Lord? And the Lord is saying, just keep doing Bible studies, just keep preaching, just go do Bible studies. I'm saying, and, 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 and no word from the Lord, no word. And this was for six months. And you know, we got to a place where there was more air in the cupboard than food. Somebody knows what I'm talking about here. Does anybody know about more air in the... You know when you go back and there's only the gungo peas right at the back? You know what I'm saying? The stuff is slim. It's, and the kids could no longer stay in the, in the private Adventist schools. And now they had to go to government schools. And, and your vehicle, you could not really afford it. And you mess up on the payments. And this happens and that happens. And you're asking yourself the question, God, what is this all about? But faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And without faith, it is impossible to please him it must be demonstrated because someone my friends who has been shaken has been tested my friends to be one who is declared unshakable because they have been shaken I remember the end of 1993 I got a message that Zimbabwe. Anybody from Zimbabwe here? Yeah, 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 yeah. All this. There, was, there, was, there was a call uh, for me to preach in Zimbabwe. The idea was that I would go to Bulawayo and, and, and in 1994, and, and, and I asked the question, well, you know, you want me to go and preach? Yes, and, and, and what about my family? No, you can take them. Uh, we, this was before things happened in Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe had money, amen? It was all good. You remember those days? It was the breadbasket of Africa those days. It was the breadbasket of Africa. And so I thought to myself, well, maybe this is what God wants. This is the first light that I'm seeing in a direction. There's no way my employers would have allowed me uh, six weeks off to go and preach in Bulawayo in Zimbabwe. So maybe this is it. And you know how your chest inflates because now there's something going on. Now you can say to the saints, well, I'm not crazy. Uh, you know, God has called me. I'm going to Zimbabwe. Amen. 
you, you feel that you're, you're holding on to something. Does that make sense? Because you're broken right now. You don't know where you are. You're just holding on to God. And, and I remember we took all those shots and those jabs and the malaria and so forth. And, and I stood and I prayed and stood and I prayed, uh, waiting. And the tickets were meant to come uh, two weeks before we were to leave there in the April of 1994. And just as we were to receive the tickets, I got a call saying, oh, so sorry, uh, the crusade has been canceled. It is no longer happening. I said, are you crazy? I'm staking my whole reputation on this. Because when you ain't got nothing and you only got one crusade, you're holding on to everything. Sorry, phone goes down. And as the phone goes down, I just sit down. I, I, I don't know what to say. And there's a knock on my door. On the door, there's this knock. And seven young people enter in my house. George and Beverly, Barbara, some other young people. From Yardley Church in the north. And they come and they say to me, Errol, we've come to your house. That's great, wonderful, yeah. Mm. So why, why, why are you here? Well, you know, we've been praying and we've been fasting and, 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 and God has told us to come with you to Africa because we want to be missionaries with you. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful, except there's a slight problem. There's no crusade. Nobody's looking for us. I didn't say that. I'm just thinking this. And I said, oh, and, and you prayed about this. Yes, we, we prayed about this and we fasted about this and, and God gave us this word. And I said, oh, he did, did he? <laughs> and they looked sincere. So I said to them, okay, tell me, do you have any money to catch the flight to go? No, we have no money. Now, how is it possible you can come to my house telling me that God has told you to come to Africa with me and you yourself don't have money? They said, no, we're going to sell everything that we have to make up the money to come with you to Africa. We were in our 20s in those days. That is faith, my friends. They were prepared to sacrifice everything they had for the gospel's sake, even if they were broke because they felt convicted that God was calling them to do a special work. Oh, I wish we had young people like that today who are not so materially focused and are on everything else except the work of the Lord. I said, you were prepared to do that? They said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, just wait here a minute. I went outside, and I decided, let me think about this. And then I remembered, remember the story of Gideon? You know, the 3,000 men, and God said, well, you know, you don't need 3,000. Just break it down to 300, here's a couple of tests, and that will just, you know, really get you to the real ones. I thought, hang on, let me just let's test this. So I said to them, listen, if God has called you, I don't want you to sell anything. What I want you to do 
is that we're going to pray and we're going to fast. And if God be God, he will provide the money. Because I figured to myself, if God has called them, they're going to need a preacher. It was simple logic. <laughs> that they're going to need a preacher. Where they're going, I don't know. But if God provides the money, then we must be going somewhere. That was my simple logic at the age of 29. Because I was 29 at that time. Brothers and sisters, I'm talking about making God known, God's plan. We prayed, we fasted, we prayed, we fasted, and nothing. I think there was a two-pence coin we saw on the street. <laughs> that was the first. <laughs> but there was nothing else. And you know, as we prayed and we fasted, and as the days went by, they began to drop off one by one. And we thought, oh, oh yes, yes, other visions they get, other visions. But there were three that remained. George and Beverly, and also Barbara, who was a Pentecostal, they stayed. And the days was coming where we were supposed to leave, but no money, no tickets, nothing. And then we were in the kitchen, my wife and I, one evening, you know, and I said to her, you know, we've been through so much, babes, but wouldn't it be something if we went to the airport with no money, no tickets, and just got to the airport and waited on God to deliver us? Wouldn't that be something? And she turns around, she says, Errol, you're crazy. There's no way we're going to do it. I said, listen, let's remember why we're in this position. You told me that God told me to give my job. That's why we're here. Don't tell me I'm crazy. Why shouldn't we go to the airport? I've done everything else. I've given up my job. I've been a fool for Christ's sake. I'm doing Bible studies. I don't know where it's going. Folks have come to the house saying that God told them to come with us. Well, why shouldn't we then just go to the airports? She said, okay then, let's do it. So I went to our friends and I said, would you be willing to go and to the airport? They said, yes. With no money, yes. So I said, fine, let us pack. Now, you see, I had a simple view in my mind. Faith has no backup plans. Did you hear what I said? Faith does not have backup plans. God's got his ways of getting us there, but God wants us to have faith in him. And without faith, it is what? Impossible to what? Please him. So faith, my friends, is manifested in obedience. I remember that Sabbath I preached. Man, I look back at it, man, I must have been out of my mind. I said, brethren, pray for us. We're leaving to Africa on Monday. Pray for us. Ain't got no tickets, no money, nothing. But I was convinced in my mind that we are going somewhere. And I remember on that Monday, everybody packed, myself, my wife, my two little kids, aged two and three, uh, George, Beverly, Barbara, we packed everything, and then we called on Elder McNeil to take us to the airport. And I remember he picked us up there, and he couldn't understand why we were so quiet in that van. Because <laughs> we knew we were taking the biggest risk of our lives. We were silent. 
And he got us to Birmingham Airport. I think it was Birmingham Airport we got to. And he said, can I see you off? I said, no, no, it's okay. You can go. You can go. You can go. You can go. And, and my game plan was very simple. You see, the Romans were able to conquer Europe because every, every time they came to a particular place to conquer it, they would burn their boats. And every bridge they crossed, they would burn it. So that when they got into the battle, there was no bridge to cross and no boat to get back into. They had to win because they would die otherwise. And my simple plan was this. Uh, take us to the airports and leave us there because we ain't got no way to get home. So we get to the airport. Elderman Neil leaves. I, I, I go to the ticket place. I says uh, there should be a ticket for Mr. Nemhard and um, seven of us. Lady says, "Well, you know, can I have your passports?" And I'm giving them the passport, and my heart's beating. <laughs> she looks down the screen and says, "Well, you know, Mr. Nemhard, I don't see any of the names here." I said, "Look again; they must be there." He said, Mr. Nemhard, I, 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 don't, I don't see the names. I, I, I don't see the names. And my friends turned around and said, well, Errol, but your name should be on there because you're going to do this crusade. And I said, well, actually, there's no crusade. They said, what do you mean? I said, well, there's no crusade. I said, well, well, in fact, there's no ticket. There's no crusade. There's nothing. They said, well, why have you brought us here? I said, I didn't bring you here. You came to my house telling me that God called you to come with me. I didn't want to spoil your joy. That's why you're here with me right now. That's the only reason you're here with me right now. So I didn't lie. They said, well, what are we going to do? I said, we wait. We wait. Wait for what? Wait for God. I remember four hours passed and five hours passed and 10 hours passed and 15 hours passed and you know, security came and passed by and said, you know, uh, we noticed you here quite a while. You know, what, what flight you on? I said, no, don't worry, it's on his way, it's on his way. I remember that night we read, my wife and I, because my kids slept on the airport benches and, and George, Beverly, and Barbara, they kind of cried themselves to sleep or something like that, you know, and, and, and we opened the book of Acts. And I read every chapter that night. I read about the great exploits of God in the early Christian church. And I looked and I prayed and said, God, if you could do those things, for the furtherance of your work, surely you can do something here. And we, we, we just waited. And I remember, you know, in the morning and all of those things, and Paulette, Paulette went off to walk with the kids, and, 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 and I was sitting by myself, and there were two voices going on in my head. One was saying, you stupid idiot. Look at where you are. You've given up your job. Your church thinks you're in Africa. You ain't left. You got no money. Your, your, your elder thinks you're gone. You're still here. And now you're going to have to tell everybody you went nowhere. And then there's another voice in my head says, hold on, I'm on my way. Which one do you listen to? Which one do you wrestle with? Faith is the substance of things what? Hoped for the evidence of things not seen. There is no evidence. 
It doesn't exist. The evidence that is before me is real. You are alone in, a, in an airport with six other people, including your children, with no money, saying you're going to Africa. People think you've gone, but you are here. That's the evidence. But another voice says, discount that. I'm on my way. You remember, you remember when Daniel was kind of waiting on Gabriel and he, he was kind of delayed a couple of days, you know? That's how I figured it to be. You know, God's coming, but there's a little battle going on in the stratosphere somewhere that I got to hold on. And I remember my wife coming back to me and she says, Errol, babes, we got no money left. We, we got to go home. It's 24 hours. We, we can't stay here anymore. I said, babes, let me tell you now. I, you go home, I will die here. <laughs> I ain't going back. No, sir. I'm waiting. She said, don't you think you have pushed this thing as far as you can go? I said, babe, you got to understand. I am. I have been a fool for Christ's sake. I've done the most, what doesn't make sense even to me. And you're saying we should go home? No, I can't do it. I will not do it. She said, babes, we got to go home. Do you, remember, do, 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 do you understand when you, when you pick up the phone to phone the elder? Errol, how are you doing? How, how is Zimbabwe? <laughs> well, elder, you know, we, 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 haven't, we haven't left yet. You sound so close. Where are you? <laughs> you know, you know we, <laughs> we, we, we're still here. You know, we're, we're still here. We're still here. And you know, you get these long, pregnant pauses. And you know that pause means, what are you still doing in Birmingham airport? Could you come and get us, please? Man, I remember when Elder McNeil came to pick us up. We drove back in complete silence. My friends were so ashamed. They went into our houses. They said, we can't even go home. It was like the great disappointment of 1844. Can I finish this story? Can I finish this story? I, I know I've messed up the time, but can I finish the story? That night, I cried. My mother phoned me and said, Ah, oh, have you lost your mind? You went to an airport with my grandchildren. No money. And you know how Jamaican parents are. The reputation, the rep. I said, but mom, what else could I do? Not this. I remember that night we prayed, man. I said, this is it, God. I, I, I don't know what else I can do. I, I, I don't know. I've done everything. I'm in the lion's den. I'm at the mouth of the Red Sea. I'm about to be thrown in the fiery furnace. I don't know what else I can do. And I think that's when God said, finally. Thank you. There's nothing else you can do. Thank you. There's nothing you should have done. Thank you. The only thing I asked you to do was believe. The only thing I asked you to do was to be obedient with what 
I instructed you to do. I didn't ask you to go to an airport. I didn't tell you to sit for 24 hours. But since you were willing to do it, go for it. But when you finished and you come to the conclusion, Lord, there's nothing else I can do. Thank you. Now I can do something with you. you got to understand that God may wait for you to fix up your foolishness. And when you've done with your foolishness, and then you say, God, I can't do anything else. Then he claps and said, finally, you have got it. When I look back on my testimony, there was no way God was sending me to an airport. I think he appreciated it, but he wasn't sending me there. (laughs) That night, that night, the Lord provided two and a half thousand pounds. What do you say, church? Provided two and a half thousand pounds that covered all of us with the ability to go to Africa. I'm telling you, my friends, I did break dancing on my head. I danced that whole night. I thanked Jesus. I praised the Lord. I said, amen, hallelujah. And then I said, but where are we going anyway? (laughs) Nobody's expecting us. But that morning we raced, we raced to the, to the ticket office and I got back and I said, I'm back. Now. Yeah. We want to go to Africa. We got the money. So I want to get to, to, to Zimbabwe and we want to get there now. The lady said, well, you know, um, you can go to Zimbabwe. There's two options available to you. Uh, one is to leave and you'll have to stay over in South Africa uh, for a few days and then catch a flight to Zimbabwe. Or uh, the next flight is on the Monday directly to Zimbabwe. And, and, and the problem that I had was that she said, I have to go via South Africa. That was the better option. No, that was not the option I wanted. It wasn't the option because between between Thursday and, 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 and Monday is a day I did not want to be around. Did, does anybody know what day that is? I, I really didn't want to be around. I wasn't ready for the mission story. I wasn't ready to give it. It's Sabbath. Saints are going to be waiting for that mission story. I wasn't ready to give it. And she said, I said, but, but I can't go to South Africa because don't you know what's going on in that country? They're killing each other like it's going out of fashion. The ANC, the IFP, the Encarta Freedom Party, the Zulus and the Corses are, are killing each other. There probably isn't even a runway to land on. I mean, come on, you can't expect me to go there. She said, well, your only other option is Monday, then you can go directly. I said, man, I ain't going on the Monday. And then the Holy Spirit reminded me there was a friend of mine uh, who had actually been uh, to South Africa when he went to Zimbabwe, and he had also said to me, there's a guy that you must meet if ever you go to Zimbabwe, pass by South Africa, go and call them, they'll look after you. I remembered, I called my friend, I said, what's that number? And he gave me the number, and the guy's name was Victor Mbluli, and I said, oh, oh, oh. So I phoned him, and I said, you don't know me, I don't know you, but could we come and spend a moment in South Africa in transit to Zimbabwe? He said, no problem. I mean, I thought to myself, who on earth, who on earth do you just phone? They don't know you from Adam. And they say it's okay, but it's an African thing, isn't it? It's called Ubuntu. Ah, Ubuntu. All right, all right, all right, all right. Okay, all right, now, 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 now. 
So, 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 so that was sorted, paid the money, then we raced down to London, raced down to London, and we're going to take our flight to South Africa. God must have been laughing, eh? said, now my boy's getting it right, you know. There's a race down, and then we get there. We're about to take the flight. The only person who knows what I'm about to do is Pastor Casey Henry, who was the church minister's director of the union at that time. He was the only one who understood my sanity or insanity. And he said, I said, Pastor Henry, I don't know if I'm coming back. Like Malcolm X, I might get shot. I might die. But at least tell the church I went down preaching. I went down preaching. Yes, sir. And so, so Pastor Henry said, okay, boy, but just remember, be safe now. So we get there to the airport, and we get to the airport, and then Barbara has never been on a plane before. So she locks herself in the girl's room. <laughs> she locks herself in the girl's room. She won't come out. Oh, help me, saints. I had to go into the ladies' room and bang on that door and said, we've been through too much. Get out. We got to get on that plane. Get on that plane. Saints, we got on that plane. Flying to South Africa pre-1994 elections. What is a black man doing in a country like that pre-1994? But God has a plan. Get down into South Africa, land there, and you know, I'm thinking an AK-47 is going to go off any minute, you know, so I'm holding my kids tight as we're going down, and, and I'm thinking, there's a runway to land on, my gosh, this is good. Uh, at least we, we get there, and, and then we're met by the saints, and, and they look good, they're, they're driving nice cars, they're, they're dressed, I mean, you know, I'm thinking of some African stuff, you know, that whole persona, you know, that whole thing, you know, you know, lions and tigers and stuff like that, but, but there's none of that there, it's all built up, it looks good, and then they take us to the conference office and they take us to the conference office and then from there uh, we meet with the president he says well welcome I believe you're on the way to Zimbabwe what are you going to do I really don't know who's waiting for you when you get there I really don't know neither uh, but but then why are you here on transit to Zimbabwe and he looks at me like you looked at me and thought is this another David Koresh moment I mean you know, it's like, you know. so he phones he says is there anybody in your conference who can verify that you are in good and regular standing? I said, no, they, Pastor Casey Henry, if you just call him, he will verify everything. They phoned Pastor Casey Henry. He said, oh, well, don't worry. He's a good man. He's, he's, he's a good and regular standing. He's an elder. Uh, not sure why he's there, but anyway, the most important thing is that he is a good and regular standing. And so the president said, would you like to preach in Soweto? I said, Soweto? Who's, been, who's from Soweto? Soweto, anybody from Soweto? Okay, 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 I got a few, few, few. Okay, so who's from Soweto? And, and, then, and then I said, no, sir, no, thank you. I'm not preaching in Soweto. I'd watched, I'd watched Cry Freedom. <laughs> no, sir. I'd watched Cry Freedom. I've seen the stuff going on there. I'm not going to die. I've come this far to go die in Soweto? No way. And it's my wife said, you're going to Soweto. <laughs> my friends, they took us to Soweto. And they took us to Soweto, and let me tell you, we had such wonderful praise and worship in the saints in Soweto of South Africa. It was such a beautiful experience. I went to Orlando West. I preached there. And after I finished, the folks said, well, tell us, you're going to Zimbabwe. Yes. And, and what are you going to do in Zimbabwe? Don't know. Is anybody waiting for you? No. Uh, well, you know, it's been eight years since we had an evangelistic campaign here in, Sa in, in Soweto because of the political instability and the violence that's been 
been going on. And since we haven't had a campaign, would you be willing to do a campaign here in Soweto? Because people need the Lord. People need the Lord. Now, now you got to understand, God had no intention. Sorry, Zimbabweans. He had no intention of me coming to your place. None. None. His focus was on South Africa. I said, okay, no problem. We'll do that. That's, as they said, well, you know, don't you have to have uh, evangelistic tracks? They said, this is Africa, man. It's like a white flag. You just tell people there's a crusade, they'll come running. <laughs> Brethren, I got to close, I got to close. Brethren, that, that, that next three weeks, my son and daughter were little missionaries. My, my, my friends were missionaries. My wife sang every night. I preached seven nights a week. There's often a thousand people that attended. And in that time, we had Lutherans and, and Presbyterians and Catholics and all these kind of people because people were so scared of what the future was going to be. They needed a word of hope. Does that make sense? And in that time, my friends, 200 people made decisions for baptism. And that's where I realized that God has a plan. God has a plan. You know what the simple thing was? You know when we finish? God said, now go home. Give away everything you own and you will not have a problem with giving away because now you know I can look after you. Come back and work for me. For the next four years, I never worked in the context of a corporate job. I worked for Jesus. And I tell you, he looked after us. I went through so many struggles in those first two years. See, God led me in the first time. But the devil was waiting for me the second time. I had never been so persecuted in my life as in those two years between 1994 and 1996. But I also saw God do some amazing things. And my life has never been the same again. And I'm only sharing this with you because I keep saying to my son and daughter, God's got your story lined up it's waiting God's got your story lined up and waiting don't do the things that I did nobody asked me to go to an airport but God's got your story he wants to make himself known to you how many want God to be known in your life but got to be willing if he asks you to step into spaces and to places and things you've never done before that are risky but right he wants to reveal himself because once he reveals himself to you your life will never be the same again your story shapes your life forever. I hope that you understand I'm not where I want to be, but I'm not where I used to be. 
I'm still sometimes a healthy skeptic. But God's still working with me and my family. And I know if He can do that for me, He can do it for you. Let us stand as we pray. Father God, we want to know you. Making you known to others first starts when we have allowed you to be known for ourselves. We can't give what we don't have. We can't share what we've not experienced. And what you want is for us to have a personal experience with you. An experience that becomes so fused within the fabric of our memories that all we can do is talk about you every single day. That when we meet with others and we hear their challenges because of our experience, we can assure them with a confidence that comes deep from within that God has got your back. That there's no circumstance too hard that you cannot solve because you've experienced it. There's no suffering that you will go through that God will not be present in because you've experienced it. And each and every one that is standing here tonight, today, Lord, are desirous of an experience. Some have had that experience already, but have got it shut up in their bones, and they're not sharing that experience. But Jesus, I pray today that they will be sharers of their experience, no matter how difficult or vulnerable or the mistakes they've made. Let them share it, other Lord, so that others may know that you can take us from here to there. That you can take us from the darkest places. Let us, Lord, as a church, as a people, be more authentic and vulnerable with where we have been and where you're taking us to. So that our young people may know that we're not perfect. We've messed up. But by your grace, we're still standing. So God bless us and keep us as we retire. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. May God bless you all.